or those who are chasing after them to try to clear their name, to prove their innocence. North by Northwest, Shadow of a Doubt, 39 Steps. Even named, uh, to make sure it's really clear, one film, The Wrong Man. You get it. It's said that uh, when he was a boy, uh, Hitchcock's father uh, made a deal with a local police officer to put him in jail overnight one night for a crime he didn't commit. And, uh, and that sort of haunted him all through his life um, and coming out into his movies. What a nightmare scenario, being accused of something that you didn't commit, the fear of being punished unjustly. And even if you were to clear your name somehow, you know that that stain on your reputation will last forever. When that threat comes, when you feel the threat of being accused wrongly, we typically have two responses, fight or flight. We either um, you know, put up our dukes and battle it out, or we run away. How about you? What do you do? It's interesting, when we draw close to this passage, David does neither of those things. His reply is, frankly, strange. What is his response? And what can we learn from it? You know, this is not a central passage in the books of First and Second Samuel, but it does hit on a central theme throughout Scripture. And so as we turn from it, I think we'll find God's Word both challenging and indeed hopeful. But as we do, let's ask God to bless it. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you will use it as you promised to use your word to strengthen us, to challenge us, to um, reveal in us our sin and to bring it to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, David is in perhaps one of the lowest points in his entire life as we turn to chapter 16 in 2 Samuel. He is on the run. Now, he's been on the run before. When he was a young man, he was on the run from the king of Israel, Saul. Saul's armies chased him all the way, all, every aspect of, of uh, Israel. He was chasing him throughout the country. But now as an older man, he's being chased by his son, Absalom. Absalom has been bitter towards his father, David, in David's uh, treatment of his sister. Absalom looks at David with both disdain and jealousy. Absalom believes he is a much better person to rule over the kingdom of Israel. And in the last chapter, we saw how uh, Absalom started to gather a populist movement together to support him, and from every faction of Israel, he had people on his side so that at the right moment he could proclaim himself as king. And now the next move is to go and unseat the sitting king. His next move, so that there would be no doubt on who is reigning in Israel, is to go to Jerusalem and execute his own father. Happy Father's Day by the way. <laughs> Perhaps 
Perhaps not the Father's Day sermon you were hoping for. (laughs) David knows that if he stays in Jerusalem, it would mean war with his own son. If he stays in Jerusalem, he knows even more so that there's going to be civil war. Israel versus Israel. God's people versus God's people. And so, knowing that this country isn't big enough for the both of them, knowing that Absalom is acting sinfully in his rebellion, David does what he can to prevent bloodshed. He takes the high road. He leaves Jerusalem. He heads toward the Jordan River, out of the Promised Land. David chooses exile for the sake of this nation. Now, exile has always been a sign of the curse on God's people, a curse from God. It will be the punishment in about 300 years that Israel will face because of its stubborn uh, idolatry and sin. And because they wouldn't give it up, God would send them off into a foreign land. And here... David takes this exile on himself for the good of the people. And as David is being self-sacrificial, noble, perhaps, he and his retinue, his group, wandering on the way to the Jordan, start hearing these foul obscenities being thrown at him. And more than curses... He starts to feel little stones on his head being thrown down and dirt being thrown on top of him. And as he looks up on the hill across the way, he sees one little guy over there shouting down at him and pelting them with stones and dirt. Who is this guy? And what is he doing here? Well, verse 5 tells us that Shimei, the man on the hill is from the house of Saul. Saul, the former king. Saul and his house had been wiped out almost completely from the land. But here and there in 2 Samuel, we find that there is a remnant that has remained in the land. And this group of Saulites still hold the claim that Saul is the legitimate dynasty that his people should be on the throne. And so Shimei is berating David with curses, throwing stones at him as one who has won the victory. See, Shimei thinks that David is now going off in defeat, and he is gleeful. He is taunting him. He is doing, you know, we used to do this in college, na-na-na-na, hey, goodbye, when a guy fouls out. It's likely that the stones aren't really that big. He's not intending to harm them. But it's a symbolic act. You stone somebody in Israel as a capital offense. And so Shimei is there pelting them symbolically to say, you deserve execution. Shimei is performing a mock mock execution. He's throwing dirt on them. The word is dust, and it is the same word for word in Scripture when it says, from dust you 
came, and so to the dust you shall return. He's performing a mock burial of them, throwing dust on them, executing them. Ha ha, David, you're being buried. You're off to die. It's salt in David's wounds. The taunts were vicious. Get out of here, you man of blood. He's calling him a murderer. Get out of here, you worthless fellow. Now, to be honest, that doesn't sound like a really bad put-down. You worthless fellow, you. But honestly, in Hebrew, that's actually one of the worst curses you could give to somebody. It's literally a son or man of Belial. You are a worthless person. You're a nobody. Get out of here, you good-for-nothing. And Shimei goes even further, verse 8. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you reign. You see what he's saying? David, you're getting your due at last. God is judging you. God is using Absalom and his rebellion to finally punish you for all the things that you've done. You're getting your comeuppance, David. Now, here is David trying to do the right thing, trying to do the noble act to save Israel from civil war, and he's got this, I don't know, this guy up on a hill, this little pipsqueak, cursing him. David is taking his royal group, leaving the palace and becoming a refugee, to save the nation from war. And this guy has the audacity to say he's actually being punished from, from God. More to the point, he's claiming that God is avenging Saul's line. That God is avenging Saul's line for acts of murder that were committed. He is referring to three deaths in the house of Saul. The three deaths that have stood out in the books of, especially the book of 2 Samuel, are the death of Saul, the death of his son, Ishbosheth, and the death of the beloved advisor, Abner. All three were murdered. All three were killed. And he's saying, David, that blood is all on your hands. But is it? Let's do a little fact check here. Is he really the cause of the, the fall of the house of Saul. A quick glance back to chapter 31 in 1 Samuel sees that, that Saul was killed on a battlefield in a battle that David had nothing to do with. David was miles away. And when David hears about it, he kills the messenger who claimed that he was the one that killed Saul. Chapters Three and four of Second Samuel show that Abner and Joab were more murdered. Uh, sorry, Abner was murdered by Joab, not David. Ishbosheth was murdered by these thugs who thought that they were going to actually get some ransom or some uh, some reward for for killing their man. But in every case, David was far away. In every case, David actually grieved and mourned over the death 
of those in the house of Saul. In fact, in almost every case, David goes out of his way to punish those who were guilty of these murders. Shimei is doing exactly what is common today. He is taking the version of the story that he has heard from his people, and he's not listening to the other side. He doesn't care about the facts, but he's running with it. And he's finding it so easy to slander David, even to the point of proclaiming that the suffering that David is going through now is a suffering that comes from the hand of God, that God is justly punishing him. You know, criticism, no matter when it comes, is hard. Criticism from something that you didn't do is frustrating. Criticism for something that you didn't do while you're trying to do the noble thing is almost unbearable. How do you respond? How do you respond to criticism? Whether it's just or unjust, how do you respond to criticism? You know, we live in a world where it is very important to know how to defend yourself. We have alarms on our houses, our cars. We go out of our way to prevent threats to our lives and to our children. We're constantly told of new, new threats that we have to defend ourselves against. We have to protect our identity now from identity theft. We are right now being told to be on the guard for uh, our data being mined by some people. I have no idea why you would mine data about my life or what I purchase. It seems ridiculous, but that's a threat that I have to warn and protect myself against and have policies to protect me from. constantly warned about this. But all of that pales in comparison to how much time and energy we spend defending our reputation. We all must keep up a good appearance. Everyone is watching. Our name is everything. If that goes, everything's at risk. When our name is tarnished, it can become a nightmare. And so I feel like I need to go out of the way to demonstrate that I'm a good guy, that I am responsible, that my contributions are significant, that I'm important, that I'm caring. And of course, it doesn't just uh, affect one aspect of life, right? I need to defend my my uh, reputation in all spheres of my life. I must be a valuable employee. I must be a responsible father. I mean, you know all this. We need to be a good daughter, a competent mother, a loyal friend, a desirable lover, all these things that we need to show other people that we are. And the truth is, every one of those aspects are under attack. We know what it's like to to make an embarrassing mistake here or to misspeak there. And if we do that just once, everything can come crumbling down. Not only that, there's just so many things that are out of our control. People can 
take things out of context. They can impugn our motives. They can slander our reputation without really knowing the facts. The threats are all around us. And of course, we're only threatened by the things that we consider vital. You know, a concert pianist is going to care about her fingers in a way that a defensive lineman in football doesn't really have to care about. When you feel threatened, where you feel threatened reveals what you care about, what you value. I have to say, it, it won't really sting when you criticize my fashion choices. If you uh, point out my inadequacies in math, I'm not usually going to put up a fight with you. I'm usually going to shrug and say, yeah, that's me. Wish I was better, but I'm not so embarrassed about a mistake. But call me lazy, and all of a sudden I'm going to marshal all the resources that I can to defend myself and say, whoa, you are wrong. I could point to this, this, and this to show that that's not me. What do you value? Where are you vulnerable? If you value your intellect, you're going to feel threatened in situations where you feel incompetent and unprepared. If you value responsibility, you'll be mortified when you're being accused of being careless or if some ball drops that you were responsible for. Here we are in this passage. Where is David vulnerable? Well, he's the king of Israel. He's the king of God's holy nation. And right now, he is on the wrong side of a revolution, somebody claiming, a pretender to the throne, claiming that he is the right king and questioning David's godliness, questioning David's ability to lead, questioning David's authority, undermining him. Absalom is doing all those things. The nation has this big question mark. David is insecure. Has to be from this situation. And now this punk up on a ridge is claiming that all this is God's will. He is trying to hit a nerve. How should we respond? What should you do? What should you do at this particular point when your authority is being challenged. Well, you need to demonstrate that you have authority. When your power is challenged, you need to demonstrate that you still have power. That's the way it works, right? David's advisor knows this. Abishai, you respond to an attack with an attack. This little pipsqueak is going to question your authority, Let's show him that you still have the power to execute. Let's take his head off. He will stop threatening you. Verse 9. Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? He needs to remind David, hey, you're the king. This guy's a dead dog. Let me go over there and take off his head. That's how it works. That's how you defend yourself. You prove your strength. You cover over any suspected vulnerability. It makes sense. 
David's response does not make sense. David does not let Abishai execute Shimei. He rebukes Abishai. He says to him, Shimei, you are just like your brother Joab. You have never met a guy you didn't want to knock his head off. The sons of Zeruiah are are always responding to violence with violence. But David doesn't need to defend himself here. He feels no need to explain to Shimei, hey, wait a second, you should know I'm not getting kicked out because of Absalom. I'm not getting kicked out because God told me to leave. I'm doing this of my own accord. He doesn't feel the need to challenge the insults that are being hurled at him. No, he lets the insults come. He lets the rocks come. He lets the dirt be thrown down on him. What's David doing here? Is he a doormat? Is David being a pushover? Is he displaying low self-esteem? Why does David not stand up for himself? That's the advice everybody is going to give you when attacked. When you feel like you don't have power, that's the advice they're going to say. Stand up for yourself. Don't get pushed around. But look again. This is not low self-esteem. In fact, it's not being low self-esteem is one way to be defensive. Low self-esteem, you could say, well, you shouldn't expect a lot from me. Passive-aggressive can be just as defensive as aggressive-aggressive. It's defensive to downplay the criticism. It's defensive to make excuses. It's it's defensive to, to blame shift, to clarify, oh, you misunderstand. It's defensive to say, well, you know, this is bad, but it's not as bad as those people over there. David doesn't do any of these things. David listens to the criticism. He considers it. Why? Because verse 10. If the Lord has told him to curse me, who am I to stop him? It says, leave him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord has told him. Do you see what David is doing here? Unbelievable. David is looking past Shimei. David is looking past the wicked motives of Shimei. David is looking past the wrong information that Shimei is throwing at him, that he is innocent of. David is looking past all the threats to his authority and security. David is looking past all of these things so he can listen to the threats against him and say, can I hear God's voice in this? Could it be that God is telling me something right now? David is saying to this guy, this guy's calling me a man of blood. And while it's true that I didn't kill the people he thinks I I did, I actually really am a man of blood. Perhaps this is the first time that David clearly hears the word of God given to the prophet Nathan in chapter 12. When Nathan said to David because of the death of Uriah and the other soldiers that, David, you are a man of blood. 
That's the same exact phrase that now Shimei is being used to wrongly accuse him of. David stops and says, you know what? You got your facts wrong, but man, you're right. I'm a man of blood. He has been a man of blood. He does deserve exile. He does deserve the stones being thrown at him. He uses the slander of Shimei as an occasion to take a spiritual inventory. He looks past what Shimei is saying and doesn't go into defensiveness, but says, you know what, this is a call for me to see if there's something I need to repent of. Is there some sin here that I didn't confess that I should be aware of? How can he do this? I want to suggest that rather than low confidence, this displays a very high level of confidence. It's a confidence in a God who loves him. He isn't afraid to go into the depths of his soul. He isn't afraid to acknowledge even to seek out sin in his life. He's not afraid for that sin to be exposed. How can he do this? Well, he can do it because of what it says in verse 12. Verse 12 is such a powerful statement. Uh, the translation is a little bumpy. Um, and it's bumpy because there are, uh, there's a, an alternate version in ancient texts. There's a variant here, and we really have two choices to work with. I'll lay them out quickly, but the first option is really the option that our uh, translation has here, the ESV. And it says, uh, perhaps it says better this way, perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and the Lord will return good instead of cursing. Basically, he's saying, Perhaps God is going to have pity on me because of the suffering that I'm facing right now. Now, our translation, I think, goes a little too far to sound like he's hoping that God is going to right a great wrong. No, David knows he deserves curses. The question here is whether, in the midst of the curses, God is going to relent and hold back his punishment and give him relief. That's the point. David knows he deserves curses. That's the whole point of verse 10. He isn't appealing for God to rush to his defense. He's appealing for God to have mercy on him. That's option one. Look at my, my affliction. Option two, which is the variant which most translations avoid because it just doesn't seem to be possible. It seems rather outrageous. Is that instead of it saying affliction, it should say iniquity. And that could make us feel uncomfortable. That translation would read, perhaps the Lord will look on my iniquity. Perhaps the Lord will look on my sin and return good instead of cursing. Wow. That's not pity. That's not mercy. Can we really believe that? That God will look on my sin and return good instead of cursing. That's grace. Grace is where God looks at our sin and doesn't just resist cursing, doesn't just withhold his hand. He looks on our sin and he responds with 
goodness. That's the radical message of the gospel. God doesn't simply excuse our bad behavior. He covers us over with righteousness and holiness. We stand before God not as blank slates. We stand before God as those who are righteous, sons and daughters, loved. Christ took our sin upon himself and gives us glory. And it's true, we will not experience that fully until we get to heaven. But you can sit here today if you've trusted in Christ and you will not be more glorious in the eyes of God than you are this very day. Because that glory comes from Christ. That's who you are. That's what you will experience and feel on that day. Sounds too good to be true. And if you think it's too good to be true, oh, yeah, let's talk. This is a question that's not worth letting go. At the end of the day, both options are true. Both make sense of the passage. Both point to David saying, I have confidence in David, in God, that he is going to love me and bless me. Because David has fully adopted the image that God has for him. He now has freedom to hear criticism. He has freedom to hear what God wants him to hear, even when it comes from the lips of someone with false motives. Galatians 5 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. If you're consumed with defending yourself and protecting your reputation and putting out how good you are, you are not free. You can never be free. You will constantly be trying to plug all the holes in the dams where you feel threatened. How can we be free like this? Let's look at a few ways in which the gospel should set us free. First, it frees us from putting our righteousness in the hands of others. It's God's job alone to judge you. Have you given that power to somebody or something else to determine your self-worth? When we hand it over to someone else to look for significance from them, to look for acceptance from them, you will find very quickly that that is never guaranteed. And you're going to be constantly at work to try to assure it. You will be constantly at work to manipulate them to give you the assurance and confidence you need. If you fear that your boss will take away your income or your prestige or your security, you will look to perform to his eyes constantly. You will care about being seen. You will care about getting credit far more than you will care about the work that needs to be done. you fear that your son or daughter won't love you, you will feel the need to lay on the guilt trip to ensure that they will never leave you, to ensure 
that they will not abandon you. If you fear those you supervise, whether it's at work or at home, will disrespect you or undo your authority. You will need to manipulate them, showing your strictness and your harshness. Because that's the only way you can guarantee the respect you think you need to have. That's not freedom. That's being a prisoner. A prisoner to the evaluations of others constantly. Now, at this point, we could miss the point. The point is not to become apathetic or indifferent or callous to the, the statements of other people. You know, I was just on this trip this week, and I saw somebody else in the airport reading this book uh, called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Flip. Except the word's not flip. That sounds freeing, right? That's a lie. It's still being defensive if you're downplaying the criticisms of others, if you're just not caring about what they have to say. That, that's not, it's not gospel freedom to become uncaring and obnoxious. What David demonstrates is a freedom to hear criticism, not to ignore it. To listen to it. Because in it, you might discern the very word of God. What if instead of a knee-jerk reaction of being defensive... We actually paused to search out, could there be a nugget of truth? I'm not going to accept lies. I'm not going to accept mischaracterizations. But perhaps God is using this person to point something out that I need to hear, that I might be blind to. Because when we have the gospel, discovering our sin is actually good news. Now, if we're on our own to defend ourselves, that's horrible news. I don't want to find out more sin. I want to hide it. I think that if I don't pay attention to my sin, well, perhaps it'll just go away. But that never works. It's like when I was a kid and tried to clean up my room by putting things under the carpet or stashing them into my closet. Somehow mom realized I didn't really clean it up. When you have the gospel, when you know the Savior can handle all of your sin, even the really deep and ugly stuff that you don't want to look at, you can then seek it out and bring it to this God, knowing that he will crucify it on the cross. Now that's only where the power to deal with your sin is, is confessing it to him. When you have the gospel, you can discover your sin. And as you discover your sin, you will discover how great salvation is is. You can repent of it at the same time discovering the depths of God's love for you. If you don't know your sin, if you don't think you're really that bad, well then I I genuinely pity you. Because you will never know the depths of the grace that God has for you. You will never sing amazing grace. You will never Just be awakened to how awesome the work of Christ on the cross is. You would just perhaps think, yes, I thank you, God, for what you've done for me. But you know what, God? You could have done a little bit more. Because I'm still alone protecting myself. David could look at Shimei. He could hear all of Shimei's false accusations and all his gleeful taunting of him. 
And he could look up at Shimei and say, man, you don't know the half of it. There's stuff you're saying. You missed all this other stuff I did. Let me, let me list some things out for you to give taunts on. You didn't even mention my adultery. You didn't even mention my cursing God. You didn't even mention my idolatry and my fear. And Shimei, can you believe God loves me? Shimei, can you believe God still has me as king? It's amazing. David will find refreshment, even in exile, on the other side of the Jordan, because he has the covenant promises of grace. He heard from God's lips, basically, the covenant, as the prophet gave him, this covenant from God. And we have those promises now. The promise that God can look on us and instead of cursing, give us good. The passage is a small sketch of what David's greater son will do for us. We heard that in 1 Peter. Let's close with those words. For when we follow Christ, we find a blessing in the midst of cursing, even when we're wrongly accused. Peter writes it this way. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was cursed, he did not curse in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in the body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. If you're in Christ, you can hear the curses, even the wrong curses, and you can listen for the voice of God. Because you know that every wound you have, every self-inflicted mark of sin that you've brought into your life has already been healed by our Savior.